Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Pomona College professor of religious studies, Ziru Ng. Welcome, Ziru. It's good to have you with us, uh, even if it's here in cyberspace. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> so how, how have you adjusted to life in time of pandemic? Ah, that is a big question to start out with. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it actually has been uh, quite uh, an interesting journey. And I think, you know, uh, one of the most interesting thing is that to see how the college has pulled together resources, uh, both uh, from um, in terms of like uh, students, as well as faculty, as well as the administration, as well as the staff, all, 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 all niche and corners, I think, you know. Um, I don't think that when we were in, on the campus, uh, we were as united. Uh, even as when this pandemic happens, so that you know, uh, it creates some kind of a, perhaps the fact, the very fact that we are in cyberspace, make us a little bit anxious of being isolated. Um, I'm a religious studies person. I you know I study religions, so excuse me if I tend to be a little bit philosophical about things. Um, <laughs> and, they like that. Um, yeah. Um, so I, I like to look at the philosophical uh, implications, although I also enjoy the material manifestation of the thought itself. And I think that um, one of the things is that, you know, uh, we are all um, a little bit um, concerned with being um, out of it or kind of like feeling the isolation. And for that reason, we are all uh, reaching out all the more and also uh, appreciating human, uh, humanity, all the, all the more, which yeah. I think is a silver lining in this you know, crisis that we all, of course, are very sad about, um, but in, every, in everything, there is a silver lining. And that definitely, I think, you know, come across very much to me in terms of adapting, in terms of like classes, I think you know, uh, students have been most wonderful in the in my classes in terms of like the Zoom online, and they have been eager to participate, and um, I have been uh, happy to uh, to to share with them and to be taught and to learn both from the uh, teaching center as well as from my students and from colleagues as well. Uh, so it has all been uh, quite an interesting uh, learning journey, I would say. Um, and at the same time, I think, you know, uh, we also realize that there are always room. In fact, I think uh, there's always room to grow, uh, especially since I came here to teach in 2000 and I am now is 20, 20, 20 years later. Uh, when you think that, you know, you've gone through a <laughs> tenure and then, you know, full professor promotion and et cetera and things like that. And then along come the pandemic and you realize that, wow, you, are, you actually have a lot of empty spaces, you know, evacuities to fill, to learn. And it opens up that space, which is always uh, good. 
uh, I think from the Buddhist Zen perspective, you know, uh, um, um, it talks about uh, uh, everything is a beginning. So, you know, uh, to be able to see things as uh, a beginner, that is very important to see things as a beginner always uh, is important. So I think the pandemic allows all of us, regardless of our age, to really experience life um, um, all over in uh, refresh insights. Of course, it also brings some uh, some uh, headaches. Uh, I especially <laughs> em empathize with my colleagues who have children, right? You know, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. And, and you know, um, the difficulty yeah, of childcare <laughs> and so forth and things like that. Um, but I'm sure they also have, you know, uh, good stories to tell on that part of it. Yes. Yeah. I was triple nodding on, the, on that last one. <laughs> yes, yeah, because you have children, right? Yes, I'm quite sure. Yes, yeah. I think uh, I consider myself one of the fortunate people in that respect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we all have headaches. They come in different uh, yes, sizes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, different um, for sure. Um, I'm going to take you back to the beginning, as as we okay. we say. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about growing up in Singapore um, as a child of Chinese immigrants. Um, what were you, what was your childhood like, and what what were some of the things that interested you? All right. Uh, yeah. Um, now it all seems long ago, actually, <laughs> because I've not been back. I, I wasn't able to go back to Asia this past summer. So it seems like, you know, uh, a little bit longer than usual. Um, certainly, uh, I think, you know, I was born uh, to my father was actually an immigrant from uh, Fujian, which is Southeast, uh, a, uh, Southeast China. And my mother is what we call our, um, 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 she, she was born of Fujianese too. That means uh, her, her parents, my grandparents on my mother's side were actually immigrants from also the same part of China, Fujian, as my father who is an immigrant from there. So um, my mother, you know, um, um, was actually born and raised in Singapore. Um, so I'm kind of like a, almost a half, one and a half generation, I guess. <laughs> right. we would call, you know, um, I was the youngest of like you know eight children, and uh, um, and uh, I would say I'm an accidental child because I don't think my parents were planning on having uh, the last two children, but it just happened. And so <laughs> by the time I was born, actually, uh, my my siblings were actually old enough so that, you know, uh, they got a say uh, about my name. Uh, of course, you have introduced me as Chiru Ng, right? Um, the last name is Ng, which is the family name or the clan name, basically, you know, following Chinese clan, family clans. Uh, so Ng, and that's a pronunciation from Fujian. Uh, it's a Fujian pronunciation, Ng, which means yellow, actually. And also sometimes it has a connotation with royalty, actually. So, um, uh, but the interesting part uh, is that, you know, sometimes students ask me about this, which is that I have such a long name, so King Lillian, and then, you know, the middle name, Chiru, and then uh, the very short last name, um, right? You know, so Socking Lillian, and I have to explain why the Socking Lillian, and that is because uh, my, my parents are traditional Chinese, 
uh, they grew up as you know within the traditional uh, Chinese family, uh, and so they gave me a Chinese name which was Sokking, pronounced in the Fujianese way, and then uh, my my siblings were already school going age or even older, and so they came up with you know uh, the name Lillian because we were part of the. Um, British colony. Singapore was part of British colony for for a while, and so they are kind of like you know uh, they went to school and they study English and they have learned uh, different 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 kind of uh, uh, um, different kind of um, 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 different ways of uh, uh, different types of knowledge. I guess you might want to edit on that part of it. Uh, so different different knowledges. And so they are very interested in, uh, they went through a phase of, you know, interest in Christianity or Christian names, what is called Christian names or Anglo names. And as I was a baby uh, and they were calling, giving themselves, you know, Anglo name, they stuck me with an Anglo name, which was Lillian, uh, which I had no choice in. Yeah. I'm at, I, I sometimes joke with them and say that that was probably why I became a Buddhist nun because my name was just too long, you know? <laughs> and so I decided to get a new name. When you become a Buddhist nun, you give up your family life, you give up your last name, and uh, you take on a, a new name. Actually, the, in Chinese tradition, which is very family-oriented, uh, Buddhist monastics actually has a last name, which is Si, S-H-I. And that is the Chinese transliteration or, or translation for Shakya, which means Shakyamuni Buddha, uh, the Shakya clan, the Buddha's clan. So actually, uh, in my religious name, my name is Si Ziru, actually. Um, so there goes my name, and that's one part of my <laughs> history. Uh, I guess, you know, um, I'm approaching this in a very uh, typical Confucian name, uh, <laughs> Confucian way, Confucian Chinese way, because, you know, in Confucianism, naming is very important. To get your uh -huh. name right uh, is half the deal. It's kind of like categorization and definition you have to define. So you have to name things properly. And so, you know, um, I'm starting my history in a very Chinese way in the sense of like, you know, going back to mining. Um, as a child, I guess, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't think I had a, all that e eventful, but then uh, to me, I guess it was a very special in some ways uh, childhood in the sense that, you know, um, um, my parents uh, uh, had a difficult life. And so my siblings all, you know, grew up um, having to help in the grocery store. My father was a grocery store owner. And um, I know that I grew up half the time, you know, being told by my, by my siblings that I was born with a silver spoon because I didn't have to do this. I didn't have to do that. <laughs> you know, I got the first pair of sneakers when I was already in my elementary school, which they never did, you know. So I think I the youngest child always... I, doesn't the youngest child always get that in every culture? <laughs> uh, yes, that, that, that is so. Um, that's definitely so. And that's the other thing that uh, that I always joke about to my siblings when I go, go, go back to, because uh, we have a tradition of passing on housework from, you know, the older sibling down to the next and et cetera. 
And when it came to me, I have nobody else to pass on the housework too. So I have to definitely get out of the family. <laughs> and so I, I took up the ropes, um, you know, uh, <laughs> Uh, that's a joke, of course. Uh, <laughs> I joke with my siblings about that. And um, I think um, some of the memories that I have of Singapore was, you know, when I go back now to Singapore, I often miss actually um, 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 the old Singapore because I remember as a kid um, going, uh, some of our special delights is to watch what we call the Chinese wayang. That would be like a treat, right? You know, uh, on certain festive occasion, the Chinese festivals, uh, the children would kind of take boxes, like, you know, um, wooden crates, and then you would climb on top of it to actually watch the Wayang show or Chinese opera show that would be showing as part of the offerings to gods. There would be a festival, you know, uh, clan families often would come together. Uh, since I come from immigrant Chinese families, we were, were very much part of this kind of clans. Uh, and you could, you know, um, and one of the enjoyments was watching those. Uh, I think that is no longer, definitely no longer very much. It is an art now, of course. You know, Wayang and Chinese opera is now very much appreciated as an art. And you, of course, have to pay tons of money now to actually watch uh, Chinese opera. But that remains as one of my fond memories. The other fond memory is the radio, uh, rather than you know the television. I, I think we we got the television when I was probably in uh, primary school, primary four maybe around. Um, and before that, you know, very much my life was very much and and even after that, I think uh, 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 the what we call the radio fusion, the radio fusion, uh, the radio was very important. And I always remember as part of my childhood growing up, you know, uh, listening to all these different dialects, um, Chinese dialects, and all the long stories that would be told and all the um, programs there, you know. Um, that is one thing that uh, I don't think uh, the younger generation in Singapore uh, enjoys. However, food is still the same, I think. Food is well, not quite the same because, you know, uh, we do have a lot of fusion food now, which uh, when I was growing up, you, you, have, you, you, you don't have. But that can be fun too. Um, food is definitely a huge variety. And um, growing up in Singapore, we have kind of like, you know, uh, different, different types of uh, cultures because we are multiracial, multi uh, multi-religious and so food is definitely very diverse uh, you can get up in the morning and you can have Indian roti and then you know uh, in the afternoon uh, you'll be eating Hokkien mee or Fujian mian uh, the Hokkien noodles and then you know and it goes on right you know through the day so it's different uh, and then you have tea break and you have, have toast and so forth and all that uh, it's very much uh, are very much part of that kind of Singapore culture, you know, of, of uh, multiracial, uh, cultural, uh, cross-cultural fusion, basically. And now I think, you know, one of the risks in Singapore uh, and the government is trying to, to really address this issue is, is very much the hawker center. Uh, we have a lovely hawker center and my colleague um, in religious studies department, uh, Dara Smith, uh, 
often goes to uh, Singapore in the past, actually. And then he went to Singapore uh, because he had some very good friends before he, he joined uh, Pomona College. Um, so he knows about, you know, um, 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 the Singapore Hawker Centre, and he would say that the Hawker Centre is like a real delight. Uh, it's kind of like the food courts in the mall here, except that the food quality is much, much, it's really good. It's very ethnic good food, and uh, it's, it's much cheaper than restaurant. Um, and uh, you have like local vendors who are basically uh, um, small enterprises that they they are selling their food and so forth and all that. And you have a, a huge variety, Malay food, Indian food, you know, a Chinese food, and nowadays Vietnamese as well as Thai and so forth and, and et cetera. So, uh, uh, so it's, uh, it's only mid-afternoon, but you've just made me really hungry. <laughs> Should I start on food? <laughs> no, let's, let, me, let, me, let me ask you something. I, I, uh, when we talked, we talked some time ago, I, I did a story for the magazine uh, about right. you. And, and I remember one of the things you told me was that one of the things that attracted you to Buddhism in the first place was that it felt like a relief from some of the pressures of filial piety. Oh yeah, that's a yeah, now that's a right. concept that uh, that's hard for a lot of a lot of Westerners to understand. Can you unpack that and tell us why that was so? Why why was that so important? Yes, um, sure. Um, I think you know uh, that is actually a very important, of course, an important event in my family, uh, in, um, in my life actually, not so much in my family as in my life, in the sense that. Uh, growing up, I always have this kind of, um, um, what is that called? Um, a kind of, you know, uh, dilemma because um, as raised within the Chinese family, one of the Confucian values is filial piety, as Mark, you know, uh, points out that, you know, filial piety is very important. And so um, filial piety means uh, um, um, the gratitude, uh, that you feel for your parents, the grat the gratitude and the reverence you feel for your parents because they have uh, um, um, given birth to you, not only because they have given birth to you, but because they have cared for you and they have taken care of you and made you into what you are. And uh, within the Chinese context, the family is the core institutional unit and the children are expected to show what we call filial piety, which is like kind of, you know, uh, um, a, a very strong reverence to the family that includes a kind of nourishing of your parents as they age, um, um, just like the way they have looked after you when you were a small child who was very dependent on them. So it's a return of that kind of, you know, uh, um, um, service that they have or, or the care with which uh, the word is really... Um, um, kind of like nurturing, right? You know, nurturing or nourishing. So filial piety is understood in that way. And I had the issue because, you know, my father was a bit of a difficult person. And um, so, you know, um, um, he was actually uh, uh, pretty good to the, to, the, to, the, to the children, but less so to, the, to my mom. And so uh, we have a very... Uh, I think all the children have a very complicated relationship with him in some ways. And so, you know, um, um, I always felt like, you know, it's very hard for me to love 
and care for my parents in the same way that they care for me, especially the way that my mother cares for me. She is like totally, um, uh, she's like totally sacrificing. She would do almost anything, you know, and I can feel like, you know, the love that she feels for all her children. And, um, and I just feel guilty that I can't feel as much for that, you know, to return that kind of the equally the, the amount of, you know, uh, uh, emotion, I think, you know. Um, uh, maybe I was a very thoughtful child, but certainly, you know, I was probably around like 10 to 12, I was already thinking of things like this. And so um, um, that was a dilemma for me. And when I was, um, one of the things that attracted me to Buddhism uh, was that when my grandmother passed away, and this was when I was actually quite a little bit older, maybe around like when I was 18, 17, 18. Uh, was it 17, 18? Actually, yes, correct. Just before I went on to college. So uh, around 17, 18. And um, my grandmother passed away, and during the, the funerary services, they do evoke the imagery, the Buddhist uh, ritual. We had a Buddhist ritual for my grandmother, uh, and she she was a long time vegetarian and practicing Buddhist, maybe like forty five years or something like that. And so it was a huge Buddhist ceremony, and it was my first contact with Buddhist ritual. And uh, the I was very struck when I read in the ritual as we were singing the chanting. Uh, there was a verse that said that. The lotuses will be our parents. When you get reborn in this beautiful place, uh, in this other world, uh, in this world that is called Pure Land, uh, after your death, uh, your, your parents are not humans, but rather it doesn't say that your parents are not humans. I'm, I'm explaining that. The, the verse actually goes like, your, uh, the, the lotuses are your parents which means you are born without actually human parents, which, which really stood out for me because I was, um, because, you know, um, I kind of like that idea because it frees me from this kind of filial piety, uh, concepts of filial piety or, or filial obedience, right? You know, or filial, uh, uh, the sense of the duty that you should do for that, or towards your parents. But I do actually, um, that's not to say that, you know, I don't like performing. I think um, I was having actually a conversation with one of my, um, with one of my neighbors whose, whose mother is going to be coming, uh, who, is, who is moving here to kind of like, you know, spend the, 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 uh, the last years of his, her life. Um, and, and I was telling her that, well, you could stay with your mother. Uh, now, you know, uh, and she corrected me and said that, you know, no, no way. I don't want to live with my mother. Right. <laughs> you know, um, that is, however, a concept to me coming from um, very Asian roots and Chinese uh, family, um, Chinese family, a race within a Chinese family, probably something that is a little bit difficult to understand. I would have considered it uh, a, a real luxury. To be able, one of the things about you know teaching in Pomona was that uh, uh, that I had to be so far away uh, from the from my family. Yeah, but yeah, it works out. It still works out because you know uh, things tend to work out as we all know from uh, 
from you know from from this series of crises that it would make us strong and we can you know uh, together we will find a solution for things. Yeah. Zero, you mentioned the the um that your grandmother was a practicing Buddhist, um, yes. and that and I believe your mother was too. Can you oh, yes. tell us? Can you tell us more um, about the the kind of Buddhism that they practice, pure life Buddhism, and how how did that affect you? Right, uh, it's a form of Buddhism that you know when I teach in uh, Pomona College, very few of the students really uh, fully appreciate because I think you know in in their conception, I think um, Buddhism is very often about uh, meditation, which I also teach, and which you know I have a class that's on. Uh, meditation, um, Buddhist meditation, and uh, the form of Buddhism that I personally, the lineage that I belong to, is a reform uh, Buddhism that you know uh, stay away from or or don't promote as much, doesn't promote as much rituals. Okay, so uh, just to clarify that. But to go back to what my mother practices, um, I think you know the older generation tend to practice a form of Buddhism that's called Pure Land Buddhism. It offers them kind of, it will be as close to a, a form of Buddhism that's the closest to Christianity, I would say, uh, in the sense that it holds out a kind of afterlife destination as a shortcut, as an easy path, uh, instead of requiring the practitioner to help all living beings to be socially engaged, to, do, uh, to be literate and to read the scriptures to translate scriptures like like I am supposed to do as a uh, the way I'm trained to do um, you know uh, it caters for illiterate uh, 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 commoners who want to practice Buddhism um, and and all they have to do is to it's a form of devotional Buddhism so all they have to do in a simplest form. Uh, it only requires you to recite the name of a particular Buddha, a otherworldly Buddha, not the historical Buddha uh, in India, whom we know founded Buddhism, um, but the the uh, otherworldly or mythical Buddha called Amitabha or Amida, and you have to chant the name Amitabha. So uh, it goes like Amitabha. So something like this, you know, uh, where uh, there are different uh, intonations and it really is very catchy and it helps um, um, especially the elderly, uh, but also uh, young people enjoys it. I think I have a student, you know, uh, in theater uh, who enjoys this re recitation of the Buddha very much. Um, and um, there are definitely uh, uh, young people who enjoy recitation as well. Um, so, but for the elderly, you can actually see the appeal because it's very simple to them. They just have to learn to recite the name of the Buddha. And they practice that and, and it's, is, is, is given in the scriptures that when you die, the Buddha Amitabha will come to bring you to his land. And in the land, you can continue your practice and do the difficult practices. Uh, and there, once you've become, uh, when, once you've attained uh, awakening or enlightenment, 
you can then decide if you want to come back to this world to help all living beings, or you prefer to just live there. So you get a choice. It's a form of Buddhism that's less uh, 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 well-known, I think, in, um, in, in North America. Um, it's probably um, important with the so-called Japanese Jodo Shinshu um, group. Uh, you might know if you go to LA uh, near Japantown, Koreatown, where the J Japanese um, temples, those are Jodo Shinshu. Uh, they are a modernized form of pure land, but uh, they do that kind of practice too. Um, and I think they tend to stay as ethnic group Buddhism. Um, so this is definitely very much still very alive and very much uh, part of Chinese Buddhism, East Asian Buddhism. Uh, you see that in uh, Korea, Japan, as well as, especially in China, China and uh, Chinese immigrants uh, outside of China, uh, the chanting of, you know, the name of the Buddha. And my mother was very, very much someone who, you know, she, she, her, her life, she was very devoted to Amitabha Buddha and the Bodhisattva of compassion who is supposed to live in that land as well, which is Guan Yin. Yeah, so um, you decided at some point to dedicate your life to, mm -hmm. to, to Buddhism as a monastic. What, can you talk to us about um, why you chose that and what does it mean to be a monastic today? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think, um, well, my, my mother was practicing a form of Buddhism and she was doing um, a form of Japanese Buddhism and she was actually doing a lot of chanting and she has a shrine uh, in our living room and I used to follow her. So I would pray next to her, etc. And then when I go to school, uh, I was probably around like 10, etc. And, and our we had one classmate who was like maybe a year or two older than us from Malaysia. And she always seems to us much wiser. You know how kids are like, you know, when, when somebody who is a little bit older seems to have much more wisdom. She was very gentle and, you know, and she seems to always have the right answer for everything. And she was a Christian. And she used to kind of like dole out all this lovely little um, 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 Christian bookmarks that we, we enjoyed. And we would read actually the New Testament with her as well. Um, so, you know, when I go to, when I go to, to, to um, school, I was like joining that. And then when I come home, I would join my mother. And then I got <laughs> a little bit confused after some time. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> and then I told, you know, I, I told the Buddha that, you know, well, if there really is a Buddha, you should show yourself to me. And then I went to the, the Bible and I said, you know, oh, if there is a God, please reveal yourself. And I can choose, you know, this is like a 10 year old kid. Um, yep. but of course, nothing happened. This is a test. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's a test for God or Buddha, right? You know? And they both ignore me. They both uh, failed. They were, uh, well, you know, maybe they, they thought I was just misbehaving. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was all silence. And so, you know, um, I think that pretty much characterized mo much of our my childhood up till uh, probably my high school days. And I think I tell this because I think it shows also the kind of colonial background uh, because Singapore was a part of a um, British colony. 
And so we do have like, you know, uh, some schools which are like Christian schools. And so the influence of Christianity in within uh, 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 the classroom context was, uh, or the, the, the institutions was there. And there was also this kind of, you know, in, in those days, no longer in, in the present day, that's not so anymore. I think we have outgrown that phase. But during, when, during the time that, as I was growing up, we would, we would kind of think of, you know, a Christianity as being something that's associated with uh, people who are not of the family, right? You know, so, and so it, it, it feels kind of like interesting and, 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 and kind of appealing in some ways. And I know I would, you know, uh, do that, go to church and so forth and things like that. And then um, I think uh, it was really my, my grandmother, um, her passing away and because of all the various um, um, experiences that we had as a result of her, her passing away because she was such a long-time Buddhist and my mother was also a long-time Buddhist, but uh, and we we then uh, we were then introduced into Buddhism. And once uh, me and my siblings became interested in Buddhism, uh, at first we were drawn to the chanting because that was what we were introduced to through the funeral, right? So we began doing chanting, but then we soon realized that we can't understand um, um, what it means. And so you know, uh, we 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 then. Uh, we then um, began to look for um, a teacher. And my, my religious teacher came from Taiwan. She is an immigrant, Taiwanese immigrant to Singapore. And um, um, he was starting a form of Buddhism, uh, which is what I am from, which is to, to focus on education, very much focusing on education. And I was actually one of the first batch to be part of, I was beginning, um, college, I think, at the National University of Singapore, and then at the same time, I started uh, attending Sundays and you know sometimes night schools with my teacher as well, and studying uh, the Buddhist teachings. And it was actually quite a formal study, and I became very very interested. And we also helped him, me and my siblings, helped him to uh, actually form a Buddhist center because at that time he was an immigrant. We were part of the group of students, his students, who helped him to form a, um, a, a religious center, which has grown you know, um, um, in Singapore. And he obviously was on his own. Um, and you know, uh, I think I have told him that I really would like to become a Buddhist nun because I, I find that I'm very interested in religion because I've always asked questions about this kind of things about uh, religion. Uh, and the other of my interests, uh, much of my probably, especially in high school, uh, and I would say that it goes all the way back to you know, childhood in the sense that I'm very interested in, uh, in, in reading. And um, so I was very interested in English literature because that was my major in college. And one of the things about English literature is that you read a lot about John Keats. You read, you know, you read um, very much in, in those days, I think English literature in Singapore in the National University of Singapore was primarily British literature, so Shakespeare and so forth. And uh, what struck to me very much was that these people were very, very cognizant of, or very attuned to the impermanence of life. 
and that they were trying to create something permanent with their poetry, with their writing, trying to address the, the existential problems of life through their writing. But I'm not too sure that they ultimately actually uh, 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 um, capture eternity and that eternity can be really rendered uh, and that always, you know, kind of remain as a problem, just like, you know, uh, whether it's God or Buddha, whether, uh, uh, whether do I love my, my, my parents as much as they love me? I guess I like this kind of questioning. So I was very much, you know, um, taken up with that. And what I found in Buddhism was that it answers my question. It basically teaches the teaching of impermanence. Uh, if there is an ultimate truth in Buddhism, it is that all things are dependently conditioned. That all things are impermanent and they are dependently conditioned so that, you know, they are constantly in flux and change. And this flux and change, you need not fear it because it can be opening up new conditions. Life is always a constant uh, process rather than a fixed entity, a thing. And that's why in Buddhism, we say that, you know, one of the teachings in Mahayana Buddhism, the form of Buddhism we, we subscribe to, I subscribe to, is that emptiness, that all things are empty. All phenomena are empty, empty because everything is dependently originated and therefore lacking a kind of fixed, unchanging core essence. I think uh, such a teaching is actually very relevant to, uh, the, to the pandemic, right? You know, I think all of us are experiencing that because from day to day, we don't know what is going on. Everybody is undergoing a lot of changes. And also we are constantly finding out new potential for ourselves. And also we are constantly finding out also what triggers our frustration, I'm sure. Um, and, and no, So, you know, um, I think uh, uh, such a teaching, you can uh, very much uh, uh, understand how it, it, it could be very appealing in some sense. Uh, maybe I was a little bit beyond my age because, you know, I was probably, I think, in my in college years and I was really, really, you know, um, very struck when I when I heard my first teaching on, on emptiness, I remember telling uh, the person who brought me to the sermon, and I said that, you know, I really, really, this is really something I have to get to know because this is it for me. Even though I don't quite understand it now, um, but someday I'm going to, uh, because I can sense that this is really of very, you know, critical importance uh, to me. And, to understand the world and life as it is. Yeah, it, um, the um, the idea of emptiness. Like it's it's one thing to understand that everything is impermanent and nothing has a fixed nature. It's another thing to embrace it, right? Uh, yes, understanding. That's why you are very good. Uh, Mark has got it very well, and I always tell my students: understanding is one level. Uh, which is kind of knowing. And um, Buddhism always talk about the fact that you need also experiential 
um, um, what is experiential knowledge in the sense that uh, it's a transforming knowledge. Uh, only when your knowledge, when your knowing becomes something that actually colors yourself, that actually is almost like, you know, you are a sponge that is like totally um, immersed in it and it colors you completely so that the lenses uh, that you put on now is different. Or better still, you could say that it removes the lenses with which the Buddhists would say that, you know, we have mistaken lenses where we look at everything and we attach values and we attach uh, self and um, self and my uh, egotistical perspectives onto things um, 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 very naturally because of our accrued um, habits of thinking that goes life after life into your previous lives according to Buddhists. Um, this is a kind of accrued pattern. If you want to look at it from the scientific pattern, from the scientific perspective, then you can talk about just this life, right? And uh, most of our modern knowledge actually supports that, that we are culturally shaped, we are uh, socially shaped, our knowledge is socially shaped. And so we already have like lenses. So take off those lenses, that's what the Buddhists are saying, um, it's not enough to just know that there are lenses. They have to be kind of like removed and then you are seeing with new eyes. And those are the eyes of emptiness. Then you're going to have a joy in life. My favorite author, one of my favorite Buddhist authors, um, 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 Dogen from Japan, uh, Kamakura period Japan, 13th century, uh, 13th, 14th century Japan, um, talks about it in the in the 13th century Japan should be. Um, it talks about um, um, how you know you have joy, you find joy, uh, and that is very true because once you uh, really fully grasp emptiness or it colors your your perspectives, you experience life with a lightness. You enjoy it, but you no longer cling to it. You enjoy your beautiful cup or your lovely cup of tea, but you know also that this is uh, a tea that is, you know, once you drink it, that moment is over. Uh, you don't cling on to it. You let it go. And it brings new joy to your life. Uh, it brings a refresh uh, eyes to how you experience things because you see things uh, no longer with that kind of, you know, um, 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 fixed intention to possess. Because you know it's beyond you. Everything is dependently originated so that you, know, you can't actually determine all things, right? You, know, yeah. you can play, you can certainly put in input, but not, the outcome is not necessarily just you. Yeah. You, you just talked to us about understanding emptiness and embracing emptiness. Um, yes. Another thing that you said about Buddhism is uh, about unlearning things that we think we know about the world. What are some of those things? And can you explain that a little bit more for us? Uh, I think it's the perception uh, of things from a kind of, you know, um, um, self-centeredness, uh, a call where, you know, uh, the self, 
uh, is seen as permanent. And you relate to things, we relate to things in terms of the permanence of ourselves. So uh, when we look at something, we often color it with then uh, what we want for ourselves. So if you look at it as in terms of relationships, um, unfilled relationships, for instance, um, very often it's because we impose what we want uh, the other person to be rather than enjoy the other person as they are. And that has to do with the fact that we are coming from a perspective where we are oriented with ourselves as the core lens. It's almost as if we have a contact lens that's invisible, that is marked with like, you know, uh, me, I, me, I, right? You know, and then we process everything uh, in terms of that and we understand and characterize uh, even race or any issue and so forth like that, you know, uh, via this kind of lenses, right? You know, uh, our, our daily relationships, family relationships uh, through this kind of lenses. And then, um, and then we expect an other people but they also have their me and I, you know, lenses, right? <laughs> it would be wonderful if we all remove that and communicate openly uh, with the embracing of each other as we are, right? You know, and with the understanding that uh, all living beings have the potential to grow and that's part of emptiness. Emptiness means uh, uh, that there is no substance, there's no unchanging core. Everything is in fluctuation, in other words. And if we understand that there's always room for other people to grow and there's always room for myself to grow, then we are much more accommodating and tolerant of each other. And then we can also look, we, we can also appreciate the possibility that there will be um, there will be solutions or you know changes etc that we can together um, um, formulate. Yeah. Um, Does that answer your question, Hattie? Yes. Oh. The um, one of the things I keep thinking back on our conversation before. There were so many right. fascinating parts to it, and one of the things you would you would talk, talk to me about meditation and um, the stages of meditation. And you said that for you, learning is meditation. I, can you kind of unpack that for us? What, what is meditation and what are the stages you go through? Uh, yes. Um, in Buddhism, um, um, in, in Buddhism, we talk about the fact that, you know, there are different kinds of contemplation and that, you know, uh, there are different kinds of, um, 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 uh, meditation is kind of like understood in terms of uh, threefold uh, within particular texture traditions. I won't go into the technicalities of that, but it's called in Chinese wen si xiu. That means you know you listen in Chinese in 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 Indian and Chinese cultures, uh, especially in Indian culture, hearing is very important. Because hearing is how you hear the wisdom of uh, the fathers. In other words, you know the wisdom of uh, the scriptures. Basically, that's hearing. But uh, hearing really, you know, in 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 subsequent eras, also includes reading. 
more and more now, I think there's much more reading, right? So we could understand one, uh, which means literally hearing or listening to mean uh, contemplating the word by listening or hearing. That means, you know, you hear it, you listen to it, you read it, uh, you actually read it. Um, and that is the first stage of meditation. And then the second stage uh, meditation, the second stage is uh, contemplation, really. The second stage is contemplation. And then the third one is cultivation. So you have uh, what is number one, listening or learning or, or reading. And then, you know, second is um, contemplating. And then uh, the third one then is actual cultivation and practice. You have to go through reading or hearing and then contemplating on what you have read or, or heard. Because this tool for me is very much just like studying. Uh, it's studying. It's the Buddhist you know, uh, 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 correla co correlative, uh, the, the correlation to what is, you know, uh, in modern academic context studying, right? You know, you're studying, you study by listening or reading first, and then you have to put in thinking, you have to actually contemplate. Because if you read or listen and then let it go off without really contemplating, you can't really uh um, 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 embody to go back to what Patty was saying to embody it, but but uh, contemplating is still not yet quite embodying. It's cultivation that's the full em embodiment. But you need to go through contemplation. So in Buddhism, contemplation is very much you know you actually rehearse the teaching. So for instance, like the teaching of impermanence, some Buddhist meditation actually teach you to. To, to, to meditate on a particular topic. So for instance, like all things are impermanent and you would meditate on that and try to uh, understand it from different kinds of angles. Uh, you can even pull in your daily life. Sometimes, you know, uh, uh, there will be definitely scriptural verses that you use, but very often modern meditators will pull in also their experience to kind of help to concretize. I use that as well in my classroom context. It, um, of course, I modify it. And that's why I often like uh, in my classroom to have small classes so that my students can actually read and uh, not only read and come to class to talk, but also to write before they come in. Uh, they write something before they come in or they will read something that their classmates have written not just the readings I prescribe, but also uh, somebody who is going to present will write something on that. And then um, the rest of the class can actually engage uh, the student perspective before I bring in my perspective. And it really, you know, um, maybe for some of my colleagues, they might find that to be uh, a little bit time consuming, but uh, one ages, um, it really shows uh, the students how uh, academic community should operate. 
you know, how to be, it gives them the opportunity to learn how to be respectful of other people uh, because they are going to be the ones presenting a few weeks later. They better be <laughs> nice to them. <laughs> That's very important. Uh, so how to respectfully engage others. Uh, but at the same time, they also, uh, in the Buddhist sense, also think about the word, uh, the, the written, the writing, the reading, or the whatever the topic is from different angles, from their peers' perspective, from their perspective, which then allows them to actually familiarize themselves. One of the, one of the Buddhist techniques in terms of the contemplation is that you contemplate, this is the way you change your mind. Our mind is basically you know, a cluster of habits. And to unpack that is very difficult. And you have to intentionally, we, we think of training ourselves, tra training ourselves, training our computer skills, training our running skills, training everything. But then we really think of training our minds, which are perhaps the most in need of training. And that's what Buddhism is, is best at, I think. And the three, four steps in terms of Buddhist meditation for me is always very helpful because it helps you to train your mind in kind of like, you know, contemplating on whatever it is you, you choose to be uh, contemplating on. Usually it's a Buddhist uh, teaching, but then in the academic context, then you pick something um, and you actually, you know, familiarize yourself with it until it becomes kind of your knowledge, not just uh, something that's external knowledge. Because the more you, you, you familiarize yourself. In other words, you know, I think the Buddhist meditation, the Buddhist contemplation method is such that uh, it believes that uh, it, it, it rests on the assumption that, you know, uh, every, every thought you place, every thought you arises, you arise within you, shapes you. So you can reshape yourself your 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 mental mentally by actually taking charge of your thoughts by thinking thoughts that are that will help reform your train of thoughts you know and that's how you actually embody emptiness and then you put it into practice because practicing emptiness for instance requires you to be compassionate when you are empty of yourself, then you're completely able to empathize with another. You're completely able to empathize with another and that your compassion is one that is why is, 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 uh, is actually balanced with wisdom. You know what is wise uh, to be given to that person, not just you know, to, to, to do whatever you think that person needs or what that person thinks he needs, but you will, you know, uh, combine it, of course. Yeah. I hope that's it, clear. Yeah. Thank you. It, if our listeners want to train their minds and their thoughts, what are some suggestions that you have for them to read um, about Buddhism in general? What are some of your recommendations? Uh, well, it depends on like individuals, I guess, you know, um, but I would highly recommend that if they are very interested in um, 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 Buddhism, uh, Buddhist meditation, or 
they should read um, um, the Dogen's, I guess, you know, um, um, how, to, how to cook your life. This is actually a commentary on Dogen, but then the front part has uh, the instructions to a cook. And that often, you know, help you, help you to actually uh, um, understand some of the teachings. And then there is a, actually a very good modern Japanese commentary. So that's one thing you could read. But I do have to say that, you know, some of the Buddhist teachings are a little bit uh, uh, um, hard to actually practice without uh, the proper guidance. So if they can actually, you know, join some groups, they don't have to be Buddhist. I think uh, within the Buddhist context, Buddhist temple context, I think they are very open to almost uh, anybody joining. And I know of many uh, Buddhist groups where you know um, Christians or, or, or atheists would come and join and and listen to the teachings, and that actually will help, I think. Yeah, but um, certainly, um, 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 certainly, uh, I would recommend Dogen. I also enjoy one of my favorite authors is also Shanti Deva. Shanti Deva uh, and his uh, path to and to awakening or the Bodhisattva path uh, is actually um, translated into English. There are several translations. Shanti Deva, S H A N T I D E V A, uh, and he's a beautiful writer and one of the Dalai Lama's um, favorite author. Um, but again, these are traditional texts. I'm, I'm, as my students would say, somebody who likes really the classical texts because somehow the tradition has a rituals, you know, has really rituals that um, the modern uh, representations don't always capture in full. So I always like reading. Uh, another of my favorite texts is actually uh, the, the Vimalakirti Sutra. And this should be quite popular with um, um, an American audience because it talks about a layman uh, practice of the Bodhisattva path, or he's actually already an awakened Bodhisattva. And that's, um, that is a very interesting book. Um, but I would recommend actually, if you're very interested in like meditation and you don't want to deal with the technicalities of Buddhism, so for like a beginner, um, you could actually start with the whatever you know the Dalai Lama has written. Um, he often talks about this kind of uh, mind training um, uh, in his teachings. Actually, um, another person would be Thich Nhat Hanh, which my colleague uh, Jerry Irish often teaches in his um, courses, and I include sometimes in my Worlds of Buddhism as one unit. Um, so uh, that would be also Thich Nhat Hanh is also somebody who would uh, touch on themes like this. Yeah. Well, um, on that note, we're going to have to wrap this up. Yes. Uh, yeah. We've been talking about uh, religion in general and Buddhism in particular with Professor Zero Ring. Thanks, Zhu. This yes. has been great. I, I always I always enjoy our conversations. It's always a great joy to talk to uh, Mark, and now I get to meet Patty and Chris. Yes, yeah, the whole team, right? This is your yes, team. The whole team. Yes, yeah, right. Thank you so much. Thank you.
And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.